Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, welcome to Trashy Divorces. My name's Alicia. My name is Stacy. For y'all who like the long episodes and the ones chock full of history, holy cats. We're going time traveling! We are going time traveling. We're bringing you two episodes out of our Patreon vault today, both from 2020. Mine being from April, yours being from October. Mm -hmm. They're long. They're spiderwebby. We think you're going to like them. Going back in time with a little nod to Huey Lewis and the news today. Alicia, who do you have for us? Holy cats. I got a whole spiderweb of a trashy journey that follows up from the April 6, 2020 episode about Frank Lloyd Wright. This one covers the trashy building project. Falling Water, the home he tried to build on a rock. Right, with is, a river under the uh-huh, living room. Yeah, yeah, yeah river under a, it. A river runs through it, yeah. There's cults. There's a trashy dissolution of a marriage of the couple who wants to buy the property, too. Holy cats, it really does have everything. This is the one where the story's never over. It just gets trashier and trashier. Stacy, this week, what are you bringing us? So... In October, we like to find Halloween-y things to talk about. So in October of 2020, I wrote about the Salem witch trials and a guy named Cotton Mather and smallpox vaccines. And, oh, it goes places. There's so much. If you like it when we get a little loose, you're going to love these episodes. Also, please don't send me emails. I figured out (laughs) how to say Taliesin like halfway through the story. It's a thing. (laughs) Words are hard, and it's been a it's been a long journey over here at Trashy Divorces for me. I did figure it out. Before we get started on our episode, let's go ahead and get out this magic mirror mm-hmm. and give some big thanks and shout outs to the people who joined us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces this week. Thank you so much to Shannon J, Ashley C, Kirsten W, Jamie J, M. Larivier, Shannon A, Adrian M. Erica and Wendy B. Thanks for joining our Patreon community over there. You're getting ad-free early episodes, dumpster dives, spider webs, nightcap chats, all the good, good, good stuff. Thanks so much for your support. And thank you for coming back to listen. Alicia, if we're going to go back in time, what do we got to do? We got to get in our DeLorean and go, go, go. Alicia, I got super overheated digging that garden bed out back, and I understand you're going to tell me a very weird story about a a dirty dig. Dirty digs. I was digging on rock, and I'm dirty now. No, it's it all fits. It's a theme. Whoa, it's a quarantine theme. Not even on purpose. Okay, just stumbled into it. This dirty digs Mm. house on rock, and not done dirt cheap. at all we're going to talk a little bit about the last third of frank lloyd wright's life the cult that he creates his most significant residential work good times thank you to everybody who sent in your stories and 
photos of your time visiting Frank Lloyd Wright homes mm-hmm. in the past. Amazing. It's so much fun to see them. Mm-hmm. And uh, validating for everything I'm about to tell you. <laughs> I think it was Carolyn S. who, I think it was Carolyn S., we had a conversation yesterday about, yes, in fact, it was a cult. Because Carolyn goes to Taliesin Two in the great expanse of the West. And the guy there is like in reverence awe of Frank Lloyd Wright. They don't talk about the first wives. There's no bad stuff. It's only Olga, the perfect third wife ballerina. Oh, sure. Myth of the great man, right? Like That's it. No, it's, it's a yeah. fucking cult. So when we left Frank in our story on Sunday, he, he was, was married. Dead. To, he well, he was dead, <laughs> but he was married to Olga. They married in 1928. Remember, Frank Lloyd Wright has the big fat settlement to Miriam, 30k, right in 1928. And Frank Lloyd Wright has always been frugal, but now he's pretty broke. And then, whoa, 1929, the depression, and now they're broker. And I'm not sure if you've heard about the uh, architect of destructive love over the last two decades in the press, right? He's not getting any work. His name and his reputation are mired in scandal. Right. His business suffers. He is old. He's washed up. No one wants him. The depression hits. No one's building anything. He has no commissions for like three years. Things are pretty skint at Taliesin. Yeah, I can imagine that respectable people didn't really want to be, oh, I've hired Frank Lloyd Wright to make my new home. Like, mm-mm. No, he's in his <laughs> mid-60s. He's washed up. One day there will be a podcast called Trashy Divorces, and this guy <laughs> is the Somehow star. it takes them to season six. <laughs> hold on. So they're holed up at the Spring Green, Wisconsin, Taliesin. Say that right. Taliesin. I'm not sure. Oh my God. It's Taliesin. Now I'm doubting myself because this whole story. Anyway, doesn't matter. Sure. The Western Taliesin will happen a little later when Olga decides she hates Wisconsin winners, right? Like this isn't happening yet, but it will happen. Wait, so the. Is she Russian? She's not Russian, right? She's uh, Montenegrin. 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 Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, because I was going to be like, what, some Muscovite ballerina can't hack the cold? But no, okay. Well, she can't hack the cold. So Frank and Olga in <laughs> Taliesin, Taliesin, Jesus, Taliesin. Taliesin. Are like, hey, we have an idea. What if we make a Taliesin fellowship? Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, the Taliesin Fellowship will provide rich and wealthy kids with influential parents. They'll provide us money to support us. And in return, we'll give them an apprenticeship. Are you saying you made a fake college? They'll <laughs> a fake consultancy college. <laughs> They'll build and cook and clean and do the work oh, for us. Will they? Because we can't affor- afford servants anymore. Well, and also your history with servants has been quite bad. Thank you. I didn't want to say it, but all these, like, kids of wealthy, influential people come to work in the garden and the farm. And Frank... It's like fucking Karate Kid up in here. Grandpa Frank, wax on, wax off. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, great, if you get something out of it, super. 
but I'm a master and I'm a magician. So go ro- row that field, kid. All architects till first. <laughs> so <laughs> till up, till down. <laughs> so this works out fine for a minute. Here's a machete. Cut the grass. But like. <laughs> Like, he has no commissions for years until one day in 1933. Frank Lloyd Wright's going to, well, 1934. He's going to pick up this gig that will relaunch his career. And that commission is for a holiday cottage, quote, I'm using Joey quotes, in the Pennsylvania woodlands for this couple called the Kaufmans. It's all trashy. The home, the couple, let's get into it. I'm taking, I've got all the resources for this if you want them. This is the best story ever. I would say 70% is used from a source from the New York Times called Modern Gothic from September 23rd, 2001. The writer is Kevin Gray. Okay. Whew. Holy cats. <laughs> Edgar and Lillian's kid, Edgar Jr., has been working out at Taliesin in the fellowship. He's the son. There's a super handy way to get to know rich parents with paychecks. It's a cult. Yeah. All right. So, uh, oh my God. This is a story that keeps on giving. I'm not kidding. So, 1933, Frank and Lillian come out to see their kid, and the deal is signed in a country cottage it is. So let's meet our couple. Edgar J. Kaufman. He's kind of the trashy one here. Friends call him EJ. Okay. He's dashing. He's handsome. He's also the merchant prince heir apparent of this dis- of this department store called Kaufman's in Pittsburgh. He's the merchant prince of Pins- Pittsburgh. EJ's a Scorpio. He's born on All Souls Day, November 1st, 1885. EJ's uncles Jacob and Isaac have created a department store, which in the early part of the century, like department stores are a big fucking deal. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. EJ is going to go to Shadyside Academy and then to Yale. And in 1909... Comes from the shady side. EJ is going to take a bride. Her name is Lillian Sarah Kaufman. She is his uncle Isaac's daughter Mm. and the first cousin of EJ. So this takes me back to that Saturday Night Live skit from a few weeks ago about the Irish Irish (laughs) dating game show. God, we'll have to link that. It was amazing. Okay, so just this is just they're just intermarrying. Lillian is the daughter of the uncle. Yes. So his one of his parents' brothers. Yes. So the way the family inheritance goes, ickety ick. (laughs) So gross. (laughs) I mean, I realize this is how actually wealthy families conducted themselves for millennia but hold up though in 1909 okay so lillian is blonde exotic ambitious uh i'm sure dad would have been fine leaving the company to her but she's a girl 
So Lillian marries her cousin, EJ. But in 1909, they have to go to New York City to marry because the whole... Yeah. Pennsylvania won't do it. You yeah. can't marry your first cousin. No, because that's how you give your kid hemophilia, <laughs> among other things. So EJ and Lillian marry <laughs> to ally the family business. Oh, my God. I mean, we had to leave the state to get married, but that's... They have one child. Really different. Edgar Jonas. Healthy. Yeah. Junior in 1910. Okay. This is the kid, the one kid, the only kid that will be in his early 20s at Taliesin getting scammed in the cult by Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah. Just the genetic distillation of the Kaufman fortune. (laughs) But the alliance of these two is kind of an interesting thing. So by the early 1920s, Kaufman's is a retail giant for a lot of reasons. EJ is into aesthetics and design. His storefronts are legit. He is, oh God, doing PR better than anybody. He gets middle class people into his department store. I his feel, decors, his displays. Yeah, He's like I, a genius businessman. I feel super certain that I have seen signs for mm-hmm. Kaufman's and old pictures. No, they're bought out and become like mm-hmm. it. He's a genius. But let's not forget about Lillian, who will change her name to Lillian. Oh, my God. Yeah. She has her own brand of magic, too. Remember Blonde, Exotic, Ambitious. Legitimately some of the worst people I've ever heard of. There's an 11th floor of Kaufman's at the corner of Springfield. And I don't remember. I didn't write it down. Um, But the 11th floor is called Vendome. And it's losing money. But Lillian Lillian has an idea. And so she sets on over to Paris and bring, <laughs> brings back art and bric-a-brac and all these European things and becomes this, like, big-time European buyer. What I'm saying, and makes it a success. Like, what I'm saying is do not discount these two when it comes to business or trash. Because EJ's a trash can, at least to his wife. I mean, you married your cousin. I mean, you married your cousin. But he is, from the beginning of the marriage to her death, totally unfaithful. Wonderful. That (laughs) fixes everything. Oh, my God. Okay. So you're saying the marriage to the cousin was not a love match? It was just about retaining all of the family money? Kind of. So they wouldn't have to share it with outsiders? (laughs) Now, the thing about EJ and Lillian, they know the name of every employee they have. They're really generous to them. Like, there's legendary stories of how kind this couple are to their employees. Okay. Well, I'm happy to hear that. But EJ, just not a good dude. There are okay. public scandals all through. Yeah. Uh, I, coming back We're to already there. <laughs> okay. So the Kaufmans are going to be associated. Started as a public scandal. The Kaufmans are going to be associated with two great homes in their lives. Falling Water. And a home in Palm Springs built in 1946 by this guy named Nutra. But the first home that they build, because there's a third one, is interesting in its own way. Okay, so in the 1920s, EJ and Lillian are like top-notch. They're in the horsey country club set. And they decide they want a home in this Fox Chapel area of Pittsburgh. So they need a place to ride their horses and... Be in the horsey country club set. Right. Oh, and grow their orchids in the greenhouse. Okay, that's actually cool. But So in 1924, 
they begin construction on a home called La Torrelle. The architect is this guy named Benno. It's J-A-N-S-S-E-N. So I feel like there's some Swedish, like, so, yeah. Janssen. Mm-hmm. 18 room, just a tiny 18 room manor house set on a high knoll. Uh, it picks up, it's a Norman French manor home. There's significant uh, Normandy influences in the home. Three inch thick Vermont slate roofed and red brick walls it is 7,200 square feet. Finished in 1928. La Torelle means little tower in French, and it is the signature of their home. There is a little tower, which is the entry of the home. The Kaufmans own this home until 1940. It will then have seven different owners. The last time it was purchased that I can find was in 1989 by the president of the Cassidy Pierce Company. His name is Dennis J. Keller. Okay. So EJ has built a home. He's built buildings. He's good at decor. Like, EJ and Lillian know what they're doing. So 1934, washed up Frank Lloyd Wright. The glamorous Kaufmans meet. Oh, another bit about 1934. Einstein, Albert, comes to speak at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And E.J. and Lillian will host Einstein at La Torrelle. There you go. Okay. In 1934 also. Frank Lloyd Wright, the Kaufmans, have come to visit Edgar Jr. He's been at Taliesin for a month. And maybe think like for a month, like our kid is in a fucking cult. Maybe <laughs> let's check on him. But when they're there, I guess they get into the cult too. Because by the time they're done, yeah, we have this land up in Fayette County, Pennsylvania, and we need a new country cottage there, if you please. And Frank Lloyd Wright's like, okay, cool. I feel like there are two things that happen when (laughs) men who view themselves as great get together. Both Frank and EJ do. Right. That's that's what I'm saying. So either, yeah, either... That kind of thing happens where it's like, oh, you know what I need is your imprimatur on my next cottage. Or they become bitter rivals. and No, they... <laughs> it's gonna go bad. Oh, good. But they're gonna remain friends because they are both... That's a great, like, two great men. Well, in their own minds, I mean... Well, the country cottage I don't want to is... discount... I mean, nah. Frank Lloyd Wright definitely... Uh, whatever, but... <sighs> Wait for it. Wait for it. Okay. Okay. Not only is the country cottage going to get commissioned, but EJ's new office at the department store is going to get commissioned too. Okay. Two great men. Okay. So Frank Lloyd Wright is like, okay. So he goes to Bear Run, Fayette County, the rural land that they have to check out the land. He makes surveys. He makes maps. It's all very official. And Frankie comes back to uh, Taliesin to work on the design. And nothing happens for like two years. Zero. Zilch. Nada. And one day, two years later, (laughs) the phone rings. EJ's like, hey, didn't we have that plot of land out there? And uh, EJ's calling up Taliesin and he's like, hey, Frankie, guess what? Great news. I'm in Milwaukee and I have a car and I'm going to be there in two hours to see the plans you have for my home. Oh my God. Check mm-hmm. you soon, bro. 
Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright. And Frank Lloyd Wright runs to his desk, puts on his red cowboy boots, and starts sketching cowboy hats. At his drafting table for two hours before the knock at the door from EJ, here are plans for falling water have been created. Okay. So you're saying it's a bit rushed? No, it's not exactly a country cottage, babe. See, falling water, that property contains a beautiful waterfall. It would be the focal point for any other design from a home at any of the 360 degree plots around the waterfall. Hmm. Any other designer? Would have built a home situated at one of the 360 views. where you can see the beautiful waterfall. But not Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright sits the home on top of the waterfall. Which, as you can imagine, would be a feat in building if he can actually pull it off. It is on top of a thundering waterfall. This is a wonder of modernist design, but you have to be kidding me because it is a hot fucking mess. You can't see the waterfall from the home. No, but you would never need a white noise generator to go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I would like a ground floor bedroom, please. Okay. (laughs) EJ sees the problem. And he's, like, built a house. He's He knows what he's doing. And he's like, there is no way in hell that you can build this on top of a waterfall without reinforced steel. So EJ, on the side, gets an independent engineering firm to look at the design. And the bunch of nerds over there are like, ah, oh, yeah, this is faulty as fuck. Uh, These monolithic cantilevered terraces will never work. You need to double the amount of steel in your reinforcement. Can I just say, though, Mm -hmm. indoor fishing? (laughs) It's a beautiful... Best house ever? Maybe. It is a marvel. It is a marvel of a home. EJ tells... The manufacturers to double the steel. And from day one, from building, like, everything's off. EJ's ordered the reinforcement without Frank knowing. And Frank is fucking furious. So he and EJ are fighting this whole time. Are you doubting me? Why do you doubt me? No one doubts the great and powerful Frank Lloyd Wright. And EJ's like, buddy... You told me the price tag of this house is going to be $35,000, and right now we're creeping up to about $155,000, and this project is way over budget, and do you even know what you're doing because you're building the home on a fucking waterfall? So Frank Lloyd Wright writes back, and he accuses EJ of acting with the quote-unquote provincialism of a woman by second-guessing his genius. I just mouthed, oh my God. <laughs> With the construction in its second month, Frank Lloyd Wright says to EJ, I have put so much more into this house than you or any other client has a right to expect. That if I don't have your confidence, to hell with the whole thing. Edgar Tafel 
who is Wright's apprentice, says, There was fighting back and forth on both sides. It was terrible. Kaufman was a bit out of gear. But things of this nature happened with Wright throughout his life. He had to have an enemy because it was always someone else's fault. Hmm. He was never guilty of anything. Great men. But falling water. So what Frank designs reflects the wilderness of the landscape. Hallways flow like forest trails doubling back. They open onto rooms with like sudden clearings, their windows pulling the outdoors inside, most strikingly on the first floor, an open space for living and dining areas, as well as the library and the dining room. And the fishing ravine? No, there's a platform that literally drops off into the top of the waterfall. Like you can do a plunge pool, you could fish, you could do what you wanted. Frank Lloyd Wright designs the beds, the desks, the shelving. The Kaufmans nix his proposal for living room lamps and rounded back dining room chairs. Lillian brings her Baroque chairs back from Florence. Frank Lloyd Wright's like, hey, I have these cool rugs I want to put in. And she's like, nah, nah, dude. So Lillian will opt instead for skunk, raccoon, and beaver skins caught by a local trapper. I mean, regionally appropriate. The tree trunk side tables, Frank hates them. (laughs) She brings in artwork by Picasso and Diego Rivera and some of these Japanese block, woodblock prints. Okay. EJ convinces Wright that the boulder protruding through the living room floor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, from I'm, I'm the with waterfall you. I'm with you. at the fireplace should stay exposed. It is one of the most daring and enduring charms of the home. Wait, he had to, uh, he had to convince him to leave. So Wright already planned to have this boulder come through the floor, and this dude had to be like, actually, just don't put a rug over it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Don't cover this up. Like, let let's. Okay. No, okay. 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 So the house is completed. Falling water. Let's not turn that. Is into this a the most? Of you haven't even heard. We're not even into the oh. story yet. Holy cats! So the house is completed in 1939. I am gonna take my socks off. You should take your. I'm not the boss of you, but take your fucking I, socks off. Doing- You've never heard a story like this. Sock and shoe removal. Holy cats. This is a, just crazy. So the house is completed in 1939. EJ and Lillian plunge into their retreat with typical panache. They host costume parties. They dress up in lederhosen, Chinese robe, traditional Mexican dress. EJ is known to celebrate New Year by having his guests join him on the terrace at midnight to toss their champagne glasses into the falls. Hey, fish live there. Irish linen is changed every night. The servants set fresh fruit and water by the beds. Albert Einstein comes there. You know who else does? Your favorite gal, Frida Kahlo. Hey. And Jacques Lipschitz. Okay. I got to say, my level-headed friend was a very good Frida Kahlo. 
She was playing with her daughter yesterday. She drew the unibrow on and then put all kinds of cool, really colorful good. barrettes in her hair. She's great. lovely. She really does look like Ava Gardner, though. She's Ava Gardner. She's it, it's she's very. It must gorge. be very difficult to be her. <laughs> Falling water, Stacy. Falling water. Falling water is kind of crap <laughs> because from the get go, cracks again appearing in the parapets of the master terrace. Lillian hates that it gets clammy in the summer from the moisture of you know. A waterfall. Oh, a waterfall. Just a little river. The terraces are unbearably hot. She will stay mostly in the guest house, which is cooler. And honestly, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright is still lucky this thing is fucking standing. Because all of the problems have been found in this structure. Like another 12 million has been put into making the thing, like, not fall down. They thought the, like, first floor was self-supporting on its own, but it's not. It's like, you have no idea. Okay, no, this story is just heating up. Are you looking at falling water? I, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, on the waterfall. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. Okay. We're just getting going. <laughs> okay. So let's finish with Frank Lloyd Wright for now, I think. He is also working on the Johnson Wax Building, which is a design that is... I've watched a hundred videos of Frank Lloyd Wright's houses and I can like every good artist, like when I look at Monet or Picasso, I, I can see their brushstroke. You know how I look at art in a different way. And it took me like a good 40 home tours and I'm like, oh no, I see his brushstrokes. The Johnson Wax Building is a design that's out of this world. Like he, he's he's making a comeback he's gonna go out and do Taliesin West and make a cult out there too and have another apprenticeship program for the people on the west coast really need that grass mode guys it's oh. <laughs> how you become I an architect I need you to source local rock boulders out of the ground for me to build this home and then carry them Jesus Christ. okay so we're going to leave Frank on the depot made of reinforced steel because you're building a home on a waterfall. Okay, back to the Kaufmans. It's the 1940s. And EJ and Lillian typically do not use falling water in the wintertime because it's a summer cottage. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a summer cottage retreat. Well, and they've got a place in Palm Springs, California. Is that what you were saying? Not yet. Okay. But... But yeah, I mean, you don't. It's summer. It's Pennsylvania. You don't. That's not where you want to winter if you have unlimited resources and you've married your cousin (laughs) to keep it in the family. So they have a butler that hangs out there during the colder months. Also named Kaufman. But unexpectedly, EJ and Lillian are like, oh, it's a nice weekend. Let's head up. It'll be a great weekend in the woods. But oh, shit. The butler has set up this brothel in the home. For wealthy Pennsylvania businessmen as a little side hustle. Oh, my God. For himself while they're gone. Sure. Hey. So the shine dulls on the home a little. Mm -hmm. Okay, so EJ, we're wrapping back around to this, is a total philanderer, and women love him. He has dark eyes. He has a scar caused by a saber on his cheek, the result of a youthful fencing match in Heidelberg, Germany. Hmm. His gestures, as described in a 1940 profile piece in Fortune, gestures are described as elegant. Back Mm. in 1929, he fathers a daughter with a store model. 
But that's not all. One weekend after that, he gets the entire chorus of the Ziegfeld Follies girls to join him for a weekend in Atlantic City. Yeah, what do you want me to say? Okay, but here's my favorite. (laughs) I want you to imagine being Jane in the Kaufman's department store credit department Okay. in the 1930s when EJ walks in and says, hey, I'm going to need you to make platinum charge cards for my mistresses because that's how many of them there are. Uh, I guess you get to shop on the house if you're EJ's girl. I was going to say, like some perks. Nice to have a department store at your disposal. So Lillian like has to know, but most of it is like really kept quiet. The family doesn't talk about it. And maybe, maybe it all just remains as a dusty legend except... This is the worst. In 1933, EJ has a mistress and he has gone to a rival department store and charged thousands in jewels, designer hats. He sends them to his latest fling of the month, but the month ends and EJ's affections have cooled perhaps. So what does EJ do? Does he try to return them? Fuck yeah, he does. And the store is like, nah, man, all of this is used. You can't do that. And thus begins a very noisy lawsuit, which calls out all of EJ's philandering in the press. Wow. Okay. Won't be the last lawsuit. But Lillian, married to her cousin, will ride this out with dignity and grace, at least publicly, Behind the scenes, there's a lot of threats of divorce and her frequent move-outs. To the left, to the left. Okay. In 1946, EJ sells Kaufman's to May Department Stores Company. So now EJ and Lillian have plenty of money. They're the idle rich now. And free time. And Edgar Jr., the son, is like... I don't want to have anything to do with this business. You two are a fucking mess. And uh, I have joined the cult of Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm -hmm. Uh, Edgar Jr. uh, will be a leading architectural historian working at Columbia University and the Museum of Modern Arts. He is an acolyte of Wright. (laughs) Okay. So EJ and Lillian during this time are traveling to uh, where else? Where does everybody else go? Sunny California, Mm -hmm. hanging out in Palm Springs, you know, with the stars. Pittsburgh winters, right? And uh, the dry heat helps EJ's back because EJ's 61. And much like Frank Lloyd Wright, just two decades ago, EJ's about to be in his third act. So EJ and Lillian will meet this guy named Richard Nutra, former apprentice of the Frank Lloyd Wright cult. Mm. And they commission Richard to build a home in Palm Springs. Unlike Falling Water, which harmonizes man-made with nature, this design is sleek. It's modern, floating planes of glass, steel, stone. It stands in sharp contrast to the craggy hills behind it. Pure and rational-looking alien on the snarled landscape is how it's described. Lillian hates it. Yeah. (laughs) She hates it. It leaves her cold. And the marriage is strained. 
not just to friends and family, but to casual observers too. Super sad. In 1951, Lillian writes to Frank Lloyd Wright, who does remain a family friend, despite his being mad at EJ for having his rival Richard Nutra design them a home. Lillian writes, I feel sure that by now you will have seen Edgar and will have gathered the house in Palm Springs will in no sense have anything to do with me. Edgar and I will never share a house. That also means that when he returns, I must leave Falling Water, which is a great sorrow to me. Therefore, I have spent the last weekends motoring about the countryside, and I believe I have found a lovely spot in which to build a small house for myself. Frank Lloyd Wright doesn't write back because he knows who pays him. Oh, I see. You're not ready. Okay. Because EJ has a new gal. Her name is Grace Stoops. She's his nurse. She's half his age. The rich guys, come on. And EJ's in love. Oh, my God. Grace is staying with EJ at the Palm Springs home. And by 1952, things are very uneasy with the couple. But the fall of 1952, Lillian and her assistant of 15 years, this lady named Mary, had planned a buying spree in Europe because that makes everybody feel better. Three weeks before they set out, EJ and Lillian are together at Falling Water. This is September 7th. And Lillian fails to come down for dinner and is found on her bed having taken an overdose of sleeping pills. Yikes. But she's not dead yet. Okay. EJ does not call the local medical center or an ambulance. He, he instead calls his girlfriend. No, decides oh. it's a better idea to load Lillian in the car and drive two and a half hours to Mercy Hospital. Three hours away. Hmm. Rural health care crisis. Which may have cost Lillian her life. Mm-hmm. Like both are heavy drinkers. Remember, EJ has a bad back that leaves like- large amounts of painkillers around. I mean, did she die? Yeah. Okay. No, I would say that... Edgar Jr., the son, says she died by suicide. He's a little troubled because he and his mom were really close. Like, she was going to Europe. Like, there's some, some doubts there. But maybe it's not a suicide at all. The coroner rules this is an accidental death. Frank Lloyd Wright will write to Edgar Jr., like a week after this, your mother needs no sympathy. She shines brighter now that she no longer suffers. A longtime family friend says she struggled with the womanizing her whole life, but accepted it so long as it was casual. But the last girlfriend was not casual. Right. He fell in love with her, and I think it broke her heart. I would think so. After she came to grips with the casual stuff earlier like early in their relationship yeah like none of this is a great way to treat other people in your life i'm really sorry that's just the bottom line here funeral services for Lillian are held at rented rooms at a pittsburgh hotel god damn it grace is the hostess the nurse of Lillian's funeral un believable so i mean don't make any judgments things are about to shift again you don't even know the story no but i mean like there's no way to 
look at EJ as the husband's yeah, name. There's Edgar. no way to look at that except to think that deep down EJ deeply hated his wife. Like there's just no Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Two years later, nineteen fifty four, two years after Lillian's death, what do you think happens? Well, I'm hoping something awful to EJ. Grace and EJ get married. God damn it. She's 34. <sighs> he's 79. And he's rich. Hold hey, on. Hey, hey, Anna Nicole Smith. Now wait on it. Wedded bliss doesn't last too long. Really? EJ's dead seven months after they get married. So, ka-ching for Grace. Story's not over. At least he finally found a non-cousin nope. to marry. Nope. Stop. EJ will leave his $10 million estate to the Edgar J. Kaufman Charitable Foundation. Grace is not entitled to much because the day before the May-December love marriage bunnies get married, seven months ago, seven months and one day ago, she hastily signed a prenup that she was given. Mm -hmm. And this prenup waives any claim she has on the estate and instead gives her $40,000 a year before taxes. And well, lawyer's going to lawyer. Call my guy. So lawyers are like, oh, Grace needs to maintain her way of life. And this court battle literally goes on for years in the court, with Grace eventually losing all of her appeals by the end of the 1950s. Hey, hey, Anna Nicole Smith. Hold on. No, sadder. Grace, who has developed multiple sclerosis, she's confined to a, confined to a wheelchair Grace is alone in her apartment when a heating pad causes a fire mm. and she will die before her maid arrives like 15 minutes later after all the court battles are done. How old was she at her at the time of her death? Roughly. Oh, this is 61. She was 30. Not that old. Not that old. Early 40s. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just awful. Dude. This story yeah. just went in, I had no idea. Yeah. So in 1963, Edgar Jr., the mm -hmm. son, will leave falling water to the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. Since then, over 2 million people have visited the home of falling waters. Ooh, I got some sweet shots of uh, Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson, and Ron Howard. They're on a trip together. Oh, also, Angelina, back in better times with Brad planned a birthday outing there for him on one of his birthdays. It was snowing that day. Okay. Both EJ and Lillian are now laid to rest at Falling Water. Swiss sculptor Alberto Giacometti is commissioned to create a crypt for them on the property. The crypt has immense bronze doors depicting two solitary stick-like figures in boss relief. There's a woman sitting against a tree on the right, a man standing far away on the left, facing each other across a barren valley. Dark and stormy background, branches evoking William Blake's A Marriage of Heaven and Hell. So, Here's what's remarkable is this crypt is hidden at Falling Water. There's a little footpath. It's not part of the official tour, but if you know what you're looking for, like 150,000 people walk right by it every year and have no idea they're passing by the graves of EJ and Lillian. Also, there's a woman 
figure in white that is seen on the first floor terrace. Ghosts. There's ghost of falling water that many claim claim to, to have, seen. have seen on and off through the years. Edgar Jr. will die in 1989. His ashes are also scattered around falling water. But he will remain executor of the home and the foundation and Taliesin cult uh, until his death, even after its donation. Okay, holy cats. Here's the last little bit of spiderwebs. And apparently they may be making a fortune at falling water because the thing is falling down the water. There's a variety of package tours available. It's closed until April 30th. 30 bucks will get you a guided tour. In-depth tours, 80 bucks a pop. The Kaufman Collection Tour will run you 150 If I were to buy you a seat at the Forest to Table dinner, how much do you think that would go for? 500 bucks. 350 Okay. Brunch and Sunset Tours, 150 bucks. Oh, we could book a group of up to four in a focus tour for a cool 1500 I think more our level is the grounds pass, which is 10 bucks a year. So, woo. Oh, there's also a gift shop. Well, of course. As well. How could there not be? That's a story of falling water and the thousand spider webs of reinforced steel ghost prenups, first cousin marriages, Paris buying trips, and... That was a story that kept on giving, and you don't even know about Trashy Tidbits yet, because I have, like, four other pickups about Anne Rand. And mm-hmm. oh, Speaking of trashy people. Trashy. I'm a little surprised they didn't... I mean, I realize... <sighs> yeah, I'm you, you don't plan for pandemics, apparently, but what a cool place to quarantine. Surprised there wasn't a package for that. It's like... 10 grand a month. Have you we'll, heard about the hot and the muggy and the cracking? And we'll no, deliver it, your groceries. I mean, you have to pay for the groceries, but the delivery's free. It comes with the price. I mean, it's a modern marvel, but it's a goddamn miracle. It hasn't fallen into the waterfall yet. Indoor fishing. <laughs> Brothel. Well, family okay. home. I'm not saying it's perfect. Dude, I couldn't stop just, like, I had to stop myself. I'm like, I have 4,000 words. I'm done. I've got to quit writing. But that was 20,000 words of research. That's a hell of a story. Not a divorce. No, but. But Dirty Digs started by Frank Lloyd Wright's divorce, which leads us to the, I can work it all back around. Like, it's unfortunate (laughs) that the dude ended up. Hating his wife, who he was apparently pretty awful to. Awful to. So much that he would do that to her in death. You know, like have his mistress run her funeral. What a just garbage person. Oh, hey, RJ. Hey, Robert Wagner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, no, but kind of the... It's all creepy. Welcome to Trashy Divorces, Dirty Digs, where we destroy your heroes and your architectural plans with our reinforced steel wit. Ha! Ha! Anyway, that's Dirty Digs. 
That was awesome. Thanks. I told you you were going to like this story. It I, had everything. Everything. Every one of your little, like, Even scratch your belly spots. Prenups. Ghosts. <sighs> Ghosts. I got to edit this. And then I'm working on Trashy Tutors for tomorrow, which is even more exciting. It actually may be a double header. I don't know how I can tell one story without the other. So I'm going to work on that next. Yeah, I'm working on Church of the Flaming Dumpster Fire. Fingers crossed that it gets posted this week. Trash Candy Connoisseurs, thank you mm-hmm. for your patronage and support and giving me a reason to stay the hell inside the house and work on brilliant and amazing content. Mm-hmm. Thank you for liking our Trash Candy. Really? For we real? think y'all are just the best. We would build you a home where you could view the beautiful waterfall and all the trash candy falling off of it and you wouldn't just be sitting on it. You would own it all. You could see it. Can we, can we, and you know, after a vaccine is out, can we, can we book Falling Water for a show? God, for $40,000, probably. They're making a mint out there. We just need it for like three hours. No, we have to go to St. George Island first in our beach bungalow lockdown. Yeah, for, Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. It's just, that's just hanging out with cool people. That's not, that's on a live show. I can't wait to go into Dirty Digs on the Sand where you get to see the butterfly migration in the fall of SGI. The monarch butterflies are amazing. They're the last week of October, first week of November. It's my favorite place to be in all the world. Mm-hmm. So good. All right, now I'm just rambling. That's Dirty Digs. And EJ and Lillian and what it has to do with Frank Lloyd Wright. And it's all a fucking cult. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, thank you very much. We love you. Keep it trashy. Always. I mean, not so trashy, don't wash your damn hands. Yeah, wash your hands. Stay safe, but keep it trashy. Love you bunches. Bye. Bye. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia, It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. If you have been thinking about your financial situation, if you've been brewing questions you would like to ask a financial professional, if you would like some guidance on addressing debt, investing, or other general financial organization, then in the immortal lyrics of Amy Ray, I said it's time. Don't assume anything, just go, go, go. go. To the oaktreegroup.net. There you will find the contact information for three holistic financial planners that have been working together for over 17 years. Kelly, Eileen, and Ellen will tailor a financial strategy for your unique goals and circumstances. You can also give them a call at 770-319-1700 to schedule your free one-hour consultation. They would never use your years to psych you out. 
Again, the phone number is 770-319-1700, and the website is www.theoaktreegroup.net. Go, go, go! So, Stacy, you're taking us to another Church of the Flaming dumpster fire visit this time. We're getting all puritanical. We're getting in a time machine. Yes, we are. Whoosh. Whoosh. TARDIS, take us away. Trashy witches. I am so excited. I don't know if I'm excited or not. This story's probably going to be horrible. It's horrible. Go. Continuing our spooktober spook travaganza. (laughs) Yeah. Workshop that one. (laughs) This month, we're going to take the Church of the Flaming Dumpster Fire to Massachusetts, circa 1690. Yeah. When witches prowled, and pious men seemingly named after plants put them on trial before killing them. <laughs> um, it's not, it was the, it's the plant part. Worth understanding, <laughs> Massachusetts was at the time a theocracy. We're going to talk about the Salem witch trials. And these are considered the event that broke the back of theocracy in America. And perhaps there are some lessons that we should keep current in our hearts. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cotton Mather... I'm sure everyone's heard of this guy because what a memorable name. Was a Puritan minister who was born in Boston back when it was the chief city of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Inman has a lot to say. He's very, he's pro-witch. Inman does want. He is a black cat. Me to let everyone know that after my fun okra story from earlier this week, that cotton and okra Hmm. are actually close cousins in the genus of stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. true story there you go true story and then be good dude a few genes different and okra would just be it would be a bowl b-o-l-l okay Mm -hmm. all right cotton mather was born on february 12th 1663 making him an aquarius and i imagine that his zodiac sign was not an important thing to him if he knew about it at all it's Catherine howard's death day i think Never mind. I mean, it's very close to the same year, too, so good on you guys. (laughs) His lineage in the New England Puritan clergy was solid. He was the son of Increase Mather, who himself was a powerful clergyman and would become president of Harvard College for 20 years. What baby book did they consult? The Bible. Oh. Increase was definitely pulled from scripture. Interesting. And you shall. I, I want actually. I looked this up, and I want to say it's the literal interpretation of whatever the original language is. Hebrew. Yosef y- would be Joseph, but instead they went with the literal Yosef, meaning like to increase. Interesting. Pretty sure. Okay. Pretty sure that's what the Wikipedia told me. You're just full of you facts know, today. I like to research. I have questions, too. Increase Mather was a very famous Puritan clergyman. And then Cotton's grandfathers on both sides had also been prominent ministers. Sure. Baby Cotton was named after his maternal grandfather, John Cotton. Oh. Yes. Okay, so they took the last name and made it the first name. Of the Massachusetts Cottons. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Cotton apparently had a bit of a strained relationship with his father, but that did not stop him from graduating from Harvard at the age of 15 in 1678. Yeah, back when education standards were like, oh, you can read? Cool. Cool, cool. 
Cotton was better than most, I will say. Um, like he was, he was a he was a sharp guy who made some questionable decisions. Let's put it that way. Okay. After college, Cotton went to work as an assistant pastor at his father's North Church. Oh, not the old North Church that Paul Revere would later. Oh, I'm glad you made that distinction because it was just the question on the, the top it's of the my head. Young North Church, a century plus earlier. <laughs> but apparently a separate church. Okay. Oh, after he finished some post-grad work. Okay, like you do. At, at 18. At 16. Sure. Okay. He became a full pastor in 1685. Sorry, he graduated in 1678 from Harvard at 15. So 1685. What is he, 21? Yeah, he's a kid. <laughs> We're going to get into his spiritual warfare against witchcraft, but there are a few surprising things about the dumpster fire that I want to get into first. Okay. First, Cotton Mather was really into science, and as a voracious reader, he was a proponent of some genuinely progressive ideas. Like, surprisingly so. He and some farmer friends experimented with plant hybridization, observing that if you put red and, like, corn that comes up red and blue, they called it Indian corn, I'm sure that that is... Not an awesome description. Anyway, but it comes up with red and blue kernels. Interesting. Okay. So they planted a a row of that in a field of yellow corn. Okay. And then watched to see what would happen. Corn is primarily wind pollinated, not insect pollinated. Really? And there was, I guess, a prevailing wind pattern in this area. So probably related to the ocean being close by. Anyway... Um, so what they found is that the red and blue trait would appear most on the rows downwind from the experimental row huh. and less red and blue on the on the upwind side. So that was, you know, science, early genetic experiments. Fascinating. Back before Punnett squares and all that. But they got the gist. OK. One other science topic I want to talk about with old Cotton was that he was an early proponent of vaccination. Yeah. Back when this was. Not well understood, and but it had been in use. Apparently in India, people figured out you could do this like as early as like the 6th century or something. So at the time, this did not involve a serum in a syringe that you inject neatly into a person. Oh, God. Um, it was a lot more disgusting than that. Okay. So there were, of course, a bunch of infectious diseases that plagued humankind sure. in the 1600s and 1700s, but smallpox was perhaps yeah. the most deadly. It was pretty bad. It would flare up every decade or so, and outbreaks would easily produce 30% death rates. Wow. Happily for Boston, oh God. between 1702 and 1721, there was no smallpox. Really? Hallelujah. That's great. Except that when the outbreak of 1721 kicked up, the vast majority of Bostonians were immune naive to the virus oh no mm-hmm. vast majority it was an open field and when the hms seahorse arrived in the harbor on april 22nd i'm sorry the hms seahorse it brought the virus oh god nine cases were identified by the end of may and it appears to have gone into something like exponential spread from there i mean the timeliness of the story like because we're all familiar with these characteristics at the moment yeah. and like hopefully in a year we'll have all of this will be like wait that means fingers crossed but at the moment we all know we all know what this looks like yeah. all right so those who could leave fled to their country homes while those with nowhere to go tried to quarantine to keep the contagion away businesses shuttered trade into the city stopped as merchants from elsewhere wisely opted to sell their wares in non-smallpox locales 
<laughs> By September, 101 Bostonians were dead. The legislature passed financial relief to keep the citizenry going without jobs. Oh, my God. It's a stimulus package. Yeah. Money cannon. Like, Boom. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it is so contemporary. But Cotton Mather, witch hunter and science nerd, oh God. had first heard about inoculations way back in 1706, when a man whom he enslaved, Onesimus, I believe is how that's pronounced, explained the process that he had undergone as a child in Africa. Oh, God. So when there was an outbreak, you would identify somebody with a relatively mild case, okay. and then you would take scrapings of the person's skin eruption. Like, you would just take, you would, you get scrapings. I'm not saying it's awesome. Then you would take your naive immune person, like a child who had not lived through a smallpox outbreak, and you would, like, cut their arm and scrape that goo into the cut. Hmm. The Royal Society in England had also featured plenty of discussion about inoculation in the intervening years. And as the outbreak spread in June, Cotton sent some papers along to some Boston physicians urging them to try to inoculate the uninfected. Give me your scabs. <laughs> there was no it's shortage. So there was no shortage of scabs to be had. The people of Boston were scabby aplenty. This has taken a variety of turns so far, this story. Okay, eventually, though, one doctor agreed. This was really controversial because to the layman, you're basically saying, Oh, you Let don't me have get you disease. You don't have smallpox? Let me give you smallpox. Yeah. Here. Yeah, I will yeah, yeah. guarantee you smallpox. So eventually one agreed and inoculated his youngest son and two enslaved persons, all three of whom were down for a few days. But after about a week, they were back to pretty much normal. They had mild cases. They survived. And truly, in the era, if three people got smallpox, the odds that one of them would not survive were very high. Sure. So more inoculations followed, but the public remained wildly skeptical of it. And it really was like, you want to intentionally infect my child with smallpox? Are you insane? Big papers were against it. Benjamin Franklin's brother ran the major local paper, and he was just a diehard, like, this is madness. You will not do this to people. This is against God and man. <laughs> like, oh, my just... God. You know what? The timing here, that does that work? 1720s? Yeah. For Ben Franklin's? If he had an older brother, yeah. Anyway. A relative of... Ben Franklin's elderly by the time we get to the Bill of Rights Constitution. Okay. Yeah. So 50 years later. Yeah, okay. He's, Could, yeah, knocking around. If, and, all right. And it was very common because women died in childbirth so often, or perhaps yeah. of smallpox. I guess it's possible that his father had multiple wives and therefore children of many different ages. Possibly. But yeah, Ben was, Ben was an old guy. Like, yeah. In the, okay. Later, later in our history. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. It doesn't not make sense. Okay. So, yeah, the big papers were against it. Religious leaders spoke out against the, quote, wickedness of spreading infection, which, like, makes sense. And so you can understand where they're coming from. And also that, like, there's just an important component here that they're not understanding. Science, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In October of 1721, Boston's smallpox epidemic peaked with a monthly death toll of 411. Wow. Boston's population at the time... I was time, about to say, there's not that many people in Boston. It was about 11,000. Shit. Okay, get this. By the time the outbreak was fully ended, the following February, nearly 6,000 Bostonians had been infected. So about what? more than 50% of the population of the city had been infected. Fuck. And nearly 900 had died. Shit. So ballparking, we're talking about a 50% infection rate and a 15% death rate among the infected. Remarkable. Remarkable. 
Of those who matter, and Dr. Zabdiel Boylston had managed to convince to sit for inoculation, which was unfortunately only 287 people, six died. Oh, wow. Well, that's a hell of a better... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Um, This was in no way the end of the dispute over inoculations, but both Boylston and Mather would later be elected into the Royal Society in London based on this, based on their work in this 1721 smallpox outbreak. Pip, pip. Pip, pip. But for real, like, I gather, because Sawbones has covered this too. I don't know about this specific one, but I mean, they've definitely talked about the history of vaccinations. And like, there was certainly a risk that inoculating your child would result in your child dying. Sure. But the risk that your child catching, you know, wild type smallpox and dying was so much higher that it was worth it for parents to try. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A 2% death rate for your six died out of 300. Mm -hmm. It's 2%. That's way better than 15. Mm -hmm. You may take your chances. Exactly. All right. Now, having slightly praised Cotton Mather. Oh, God. We're going to get into some real bullshit. All right. Okay. In 1688... So, again, right. he's been pastor at North Church for three years now. He's 24, 25. Wise old man. He's a kiddo. Mm-hmm. Okay. In 1688, in what we should probably think of as a prelude, a woman named Anne Glover, or Goody Glover, as the styling was at the time, oh my. was an Irish Catholic housekeeper in Puritan Boston, working in the home of John Goodwin, who I think was fairly prominent. Okay. That summer, one of the Goodwin girls, 13-year-old Martha, accused Anne's daughter Mary of stealing laundry. Oh, no. A row erupted between Anne, Martha, and the other Goodwin children, after which, the story goes, the Goodwin kids began acting strangely. (laughs) A doctor was summoned to look at the children, and being unable to explain their apparent malady, he diagnosed them with bewitchment. Oh, Natch! Medical schools back then must have been lit totally makes sense by which i mean everyone was drunk as hell <laughs> you're bewitched <laughs> Whew. okay well everybody knows those catholics can't be trusted no. so goody glover was arrested for witchcraft sure and under questioning her interrogators including chief accuser cotton mather oh god couldn't understand her answers obviously under duress she was speaking the devil's language oh eventually somebody was like actually um She's speaking Irish. Oh, God. <laughs> so if we could get an interpreter and we translator can up in here. solve this issue pretty quickly. <laughs> <sighs> Imagine being the person who's like, actually, this sounds very much like Gaelic, like cheerful Gaelic <laughs> that I heard in the hills of Ireland. <laughs> Have you heard about my Teresa? When there's a lad. Oh, God. <laughs> Cotton Mather would visit her in prison, I think a few times over the course of this. He was a prolific writer, so a lot of this, I think, comes from his own tellings, like contemporaneous tellings of what was going on in his life. Okay. So Cotton Mather would visit her in prison and, you know, would come out and be like, oh, yes, she told me that she prays to a host of spirits, obviously demons, but she's Catholic, 
I'm pretty sure saints. He's praying to, yeah. Pretty sure asking for help from the saints. Jesus, God, and the Holy Ghost, and the intercession of saints, and yeah. This sounds like... All of the angels. This sounds, yeah, it sounds like she was expressing a very ordinary Catholic thing to do. I know when we're looking for parking places, you will often appeal to oh, St. Anthony. Is Anthony, that who it, Anthony, look mm-hmm. around. Something's lost and must be found. Exactly. Well, you're a witch. <laughs> oh, clearly. <laughs> So this sounds very much like Cotton Mather's depiction here really sounds like the, you know, knuckleheaded Protestant chauvinist way that, you know, a knucklehead Protestant chauvinist would talk about Catholics, you know, appealing to the saints for help. Sure. So, yes, obviously these foul spirits were demons. (laughs) Yes. Going after St. Teresa. (laughs) Best not miss. So, um, Goody's trial featured a fun thing called spectral evidence. This is where a witness recounts dreams or visions where, (laughs) oh yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Oh yeah. Yep. 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 Okay. This is where a witness recounts dreams or visions they had that involved either the accused or... The accused's witch's specter. Oh, God. So a witness could say they dreamed that goody so-and-so poisoned their tea. And to this fun theological court of absolute batshit madness, that meant that goody so-and-so was a proven poisoner. Well, Natch. This allowance of spectral evidence would be repeated in Salem a few years later. Nope. But in the meantime, after Cotton Mather said that goody Glover told him she had late night trysts with the devil... During another jail visit. (laughs) Six doctors were dispatched to decide if she was even competent to stand trial. So there were definitely people in this theological colony saying, like, actually, I think she's just mentally ill. And, like, you know, you put her under pressure and she she loses the ability to speak English. Like, she reverts back to her native tongue. Like, this is this is madness. What are we doing here? Oh, my God. Okay. Okay, five of the doctors said she was hunky-dory. Totally good to go. <laughs> oh, my God. It's a minority view. Poor goody. <laughs> the mental illness thing was was a minority view. It's probably witches. It, it's most <laughs> certainly witches. Let I me mean, tell you about my dream. You got to weigh these mental illness or witchcraft. I mean, come on. Like, Wow. <laughs> I'm so sorry. She she hangs in the end, so oh, I'm God. really sorry to be delighting in this story Poor so much. Goody. Another piece of evidence against Goody Glover was that when asked to recite the Lord's Prayer, a task that witches allegedly could not do, she recited it in Irish. I mean, that totally makes sense. And then again, she recited it in Latin with some imperfections. Sure. But again, under the duress of the witness stand, she could not summon the English to recite the Lord's Prayer. So in two of the three languages she had some knowledge of, she could recite the Lord's Prayer and did on command, just not the language most common to Boston, Massachusetts. On the 16th of November, 1688, she was dragged onto a scaffold in front of jeering crowds of Bostonians and hanged. No. She reportedly said something to the effect of, as her last words, my death won't help those children, but others recounted it as something like, killing me won't save them because it was other witches who hexed them. (laughs) In either case, history records that she was hanged. Yeah, she was hanged to death that day. 
and that Boston's Puritan society had exacted its revenge against an impoverished Catholic immigrant with limited language skills and probable mental illness. Way to go, Boston. Woo! Go team. Her daughter Mary seems to have had real psychological injuries from the trial and is thought to have still been imprisoned as a witch as late as 1689. And someone, it's it's on the Wikipedia page about this, but someone is quoted saying she ended her days stark raving mad. That's Um, horrible. It's horrible. It's really horrible. Okay. On to Salem, a little north of Boston. Okay. In the early spring of 1692. Okay, so just a few years after Goody's mm-hmm. demise. Yeah, that was 1688. Okay. Yeah. In January 1692, nine-year-old Betty Paris and 11-year-old Abigail Williams, they were cousins, um, the daughter and the niece of Salem Village's minister, Samuel oh, Paris. okay. Also, there was Salem Village and Salem Town. They were neighboring communities, but I, I think maybe Salem Town was wealthier and fancier. And Okay. There were some... Tensions. But did both teams have fun? <laughs> She's referencing the shirt that I'm wearing right now I that am. says, I hope, I hope that both teams had fun. Yeah. It's, okay. Sorry. It's just, it's not a visual medium. Okay. All right. These two girls, nine-year-old, 11-year-old, they begin experiencing fits that included violent contortions and uncontrollable outbursts of screaming. Oh, God. I think there were skin welts. Like, <laughs> They've been inoculated. <laughs> Just just like in Boston, a local oh doctor was called, couldn't figure it out, and so he diagnosed the girls with bewitchment. Clearly, it's, it's witchcraft. It's clearly witchcraft. Oh. Unlike in Boston, soon other girls in the community began to exhibit similar symptoms. Oh, no. Including Ann Putnam Jr., Mercy Lewis, Elizabeth Hubbard, Mary Walcott, and Mary Warren. These are gen- mostly like teenage, like young teenage girls, adolescent girls. Sure. In late February, arrest warrants were issued for oh, the no. for the Paris's enslaved housekeeper Tituba, who, sorry, along with two other women who were also at the margins of the Society of Salem Village. Oh God! So there was a homeless woman named Sarah Good and an impoverished senior citizen named Sarah Osborne. The girls accused all three of bewitching them. Okay. The three women were brought before the town magistrates to be questioned publicly in a courtroom. In the audience. These girls were writhing, contorting, screaming, shouting. You know, they were they were bewitched. They were suffering from witchcraft. Tituba And they're thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tituba, who again was an enslaved woman from the West Indies and therefore likely had a clear understanding of the danger she was in from these white assholes who, you know, were holding her captive far from her home and making her work without pay confessed to practicing witchcraft Uh. and told the court that she knew other witches too. And they were a girl gang working with the devil to subvert Puritanism (laughs) and the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the whole thing. Burn it down, motherfuckers! Burn it down. No, apparently if you confessed to witchcraft, you would not be hanged. Oh. And this woman was no dummy. Okay. If it isn't clear by now... These aren't people in command of a lot of critical thinking faculties, so the community immediately went into a full-on panic, which spread throughout Massachusetts. Meanwhile, 
you know, people were working out their personal grudges, jealousies, romantic disappointments by declaring mostly women sure. to be witches. Jeez. Respected women in the community were accused, including Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse. And the four-year-old daughter of Sarah Good, the homeless woman who was among oh my the first... God. She's four. ...was herself accused of witchcraft, because why not? Uh. Apparently, her answers were interpreted as, like, her mother forcing her into the cause of the devil or whatever. Like, okay. Y'all... Under questioning, which I think we can assume includes some torture, several of these women confessed and named others. Local courts were suddenly swamped with witchcraft cases, so actual crimes were not being investigated or prosecuted, uh, or perhaps were being rolled into other crimes uh, or or like witchcraft crimes. Yeah, that like aren't a crimes. bunch of my grain went missing. It must be the witches, right? Like, Good Lord. Mm-hmm. Luckily, in May, a new governor was appointed for Massachusetts. Ah. And to create capacity in the legal system, he established the Court of Oyer and Terminer, (laughs) which is the court to hear and decide for witchcraft cases in the three counties that make up most of the modern Boston metro area, including Salem, like Essex, Sussex, and Wessex. I don't know what it is. Okay. You Bostonians know your counties. Among the judges was William Stoughton a staunch ally of Cotton Mather and a man who had been appointed lieutenant governor of the colony after Cotton and his daddy, well, Cotton had his daddy pull some strings. Uh. While Cotton apparently did not personally attend the trials in Salem, he was a big booster of them. Uh. And he would attend the executions. He sure did like that part. Yikes. Meanwhile, he's publishing pamphlets, like weighing in on these trials that he was not attending. Oh, so, like, think of him as a Fake news. blogger who's watching court TV and writing up the most, like, clickbaity, sensational stories. Yeah. He called one accused witch, quote, a rampant hag. Huh? He referred to George Burroughs, a young Harvard alum who was hanged along with four or five others, as, quote, a very puny man and accused him of lies and evasions on the stand. And again, George was probably just gay. Maybe. Yeah. That I mean, would not actually surprise right? me. Right? Um, Cotton Mather sounds like a dick. He was not present in the court as he shared these thoughts with a very, very gullible public that was Unreal. already riled up. There'd been, like, I guess the French and the native communities nearby had allied in the not-too-distant past, so there'd been Indian attacks. There'd been, like, this was a, it was a theocracy. These people really lived in this... Like, just in between, like, the real world and the imaginary world where they were constantly in peril of eternal damnation. They're physically under threat from, you know, what they view as foreign adversaries. Like, it's just a mess. Like, it is a hotbed, a fervor. Stoke the fire, fan the flame. All right. With the court of Oyer and Terminer established... The three judges started handing down guilty verdicts pretty quickly. Wow. Bridget Bishop, an English-born woman around 60 years of age, was the first to be convicted and hanged. She was accused of bewitching five young women, and the evidence against her included allegations that her apparition, her apparition, oh God. had assaulted several people, that her apparition had threatened to drown someone. Again, these are coming from people's this dreams. Is horrible. And visions. That her apparition had torn a woman's coat. And do you know what happened when the court examined the woman's coat? It was torn. It was torn! (laughs) Burn her! (coughs) Oh, God. 
I got me excited. Sorry. <laughs> it's because you're a witch. <laughs> okay, so aside from some torn clothes in evidence that her apparition tore. There's nothing. Allegedly. Well, no, there was a man who testified that Bridget was using witchcraft to torment him. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Again, the idea that, like, men are just... Maybe Bridget turned him down once. Yeah. Maybe, you know, like... Yeah. Or maybe Bridget just didn't treat him with the respect he thought he was due as a man once. Like... Smash the fucking patriarchy. I'm done with it. (sighs) All right, so to examine... Bridget, for telltale signs of witchcraft, the court assembled a jury of women who I gather, like, made 60-year-old Bridget come before them naked. And they found a third nipple, which is obviously a clear sign (laughs) of what, I mean, if you have a third nipple, you're a witch. Now, unfortunately, a later panel examining her body could not find the third nipple, but that was probably, she probably used witchcraft to hide it. Well, come on. Like I, you do. Like you, obviously. I don't know how she forgot the first time. It's weird. I mean, egg on her face. Okay. So Bridget was hanged eight days after her conviction on the 10th of June, 1692, mm. at what would come to be known as Gallows Hill in Salem Town. Fantastic. Salem Town did not have a Gallows Hill. Oh, God. Until the Salem Witch Trials Yikes. necessitated that they name it something. Yikes. It used to just be the hill. That now hill. It's the hill where the gallows are. That hill over there. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Then I think the court kind of freaked out a little at what they had just done. And so they adjourned for a few weeks to consult with clergy about kind of where things stand. Consult with God about the state of your sorry soul? No, no. Uh, clergy. Yeah. Problematically, Cotton Mather was one of the most influential clergymen in the area. Shit. Mm-hmm. Cotton Mather penned the clergy's response, which did warn about putting too much credence on spectral evidence. But, I mean, it really opened with like, oh my God, we are besieged. We must protect our good people from... And and like the warning about spectral evidence was like, it was in there, but it was in like in this like eight part letter. It was like part five and small. And then... It ends with like, so Godspeed with our protecting our people. For, it's, oh my. Come on, guys. This is important and godly work and we got to get these witches. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Clearly had been reading the work of King James. Okay. In the next few months, more than 200 people would be examined by the court. Oh my God. And 19, including Bridget Bishop, would die most by hanging. Shit. A well-off 80-year-old farmer named Giles Corey, his wife Martha had been, I think I mentioned her earlier, along with his wife Martha, was charged with witchcraft. Giles refused to enter a plea to the court. Like, I don't think Giles accepted the legitimacy of this court this at all. Pish posh. So, yeah, under the law at the time, if you don't enter a plea, you can't be prosecuted. Oh. But to keep you from cheating the legal system that way, there was a there was a method. Oh. To try to get him to participate meaningfully in his prosecution, Giles Corey was, as the law dictated, he was pressed. That is, he was stripped naked, laid, laid out on the floor, oh, no. heavy boards were placed on his body, and then large rocks were placed onto the boards. This would be done 
until the subject changed their mind or died. Oh, my God. Giles' mind did not change. This is brutal. Again, this is an 80-year-old man. Shit. An 80-year-old farmer in colonial Massachusetts. Like, this guy, this is a tough guy. This is just... Anyway... The torture was imposed on him over a two-day period by the local sheriff, and whenever the sheriff would ask him to change his mind and enter a plea, he would respond, more weight. Wow. After two days, on September 19th, 1692, he died. Apparently, this is the only pressing death in U.S. history, and the brutality of it really... People were pissed. I hope so! This, this upset people. Yeah! His wife, Martha, was hanged three days later. Oh, my God. Mm. The apparition of Giles Corey is said to rise and walk the graveyard when a disaster is imminent. Oh. Also, the office of the Essex County Sheriff, the guy who pressed uh-huh. him, that office was said to be cursed, and people who assumed the office would, um, I guess, blood diseases became a frequent issue really? for the sheriffs of Essex County. Huh. And so over the centuries, sheriffs either resigned because they became too ill to work or just died in office of weird blood diseases. That is some trashy witches. This curse is said to have been broken in 1991 when the Essex County Sheriff's Office was moved to Middleton. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if it wasn't for that meddling curse. No more leukemia for you, I guess. Um, Okay, so so that was in September. Like, Giles Corey died in September. Okay. Early October, the wife of the colonial governor was accused of witchcraft and called before the court. No. (gasps) Surprisingly, it was at this juncture that the governor took a real interest in the obvious due process problems here (laughs) and became very concerned about all his innocent subjects being handled so badly by this weird court. Oh, my God. This is when the execution stopped. Um, It's not quite when the madness broke, but it's basically when the madness broke. Well, you get the governor's wife involved. and So, yeah, public opinion here was, like, I think everybody had just had enough. And I think everybody had worked out their grudges by then. (laughs) Right? Like, this has been going on now for six or seven or eight months. This is like a slam book come to life. A lot of people have died. A lot of people Mm. have been, like, stuck in prison for weeks and months. Like... Just a just a mess. So it turns out that piling rocks on a naked 80-year-old until he dies is not a great way to win hearts and minds. Critics were beginning to point to the absolute insanity of spectral evidence, and Cotton Mather, sensing the change in tone, took a pretty revisionist approach to his definitive text on the trials, Wonders of the Invisible World. That's Mm-mm. actually what he called his book about this. Wow. He minimized or simply excised some of his more irresponsible statements on the trials while emphasizing that he was the guy who warned about spectral evidence in that June letter, even though the rest of the June letter was basically like, full steam ahead, mates. All I'm envisioning right now is Steve Schmidt in my head. Oh, Lincoln Project. It's not my fault, but I'm going to revise it all. Yeah. And again, like his instructions killed a further 18 people. Um, (sighs) So the fever did finally fully break by May of um, 1693. So this kind of went on for over a year. This is horrible. Yeah. The governor had pardoned every, like the governor pardoned everyone who had been convicted and everyone who was still alive. Everyone who was imprisoned on witchcraft charges was finally released back into the wild to witch again. 
<laughs> By 1697, the Massachusetts General Court declared a day of fasting to commemorate the tragedy of the Salem witch trials. It didn't take long for people to yeah, we work out we like that up. That was fucking weird, wasn't it? At that time we killed all those people. Yeah. For being witches. Yeah. Later the court ruled that the trials themselves had been unlawful and one of the judges involved publicly apologized. In 1711, Massachusetts passed legislation providing restitution to the heirs of those who had been killed. Oh, really? And restoring the names of the victims to good standing. Huh. Also, Giles Corey, by not entering a plea, uh-huh. died with his estate intact. If he had entered a plea, oh. if he had been in the legal process, yeah. the state would have forfeited to the... Because he owned land. He was a yeah. he was a landowning farmer. And okay. so his... Like, he had two kids from... Again, women... Died sure. all the time. So he'd, he'd had three or four wives over his life. So he had adult children who inherited his farm intact, which is kind of weird. But More then, wait. Yeah. I mean, right. I'm 80. I'm going to die anyway. Let me not give up everything I've worked for. And this court is nonsense. Stupid. Yeah. I mean, respect, Giles and Martha and Betty and Goody and them. trashy witches forever. As a historical matter, the origins of the witch trials have been a source of fascination ever since it happened. It's certainly cited as an example of a mass hysteria outbreak, but I feel like that's just a different name for, right? That's not causal mass hysteria. What is that? What brings that about? Like, yeah. that's just a name for it. That's not any description. So there are a lot of theories, some of them more interesting than others. From a disease standpoint, Lyme disease has been proposed as one possible cause for the, the symptoms of the girl's bewitchment. Huh. So if untreated, Lyme can create neurological symptoms, arthritic symptoms, and skin rashes that could look like the pinches and bites that the, the specters of the witches allegedly left huh. on their bodies. Okay. Then, my favorite disease, encephalitis lethargica has been proposed. This is the disease from Awakenings, that movie from the 90s. Oh, Okay. So from an American context, and probably just from a modern context, there was a global pandemic of encephalitis lethargica that followed the 1918 flu. And in fact, until about like 1925, people okay. would become sick with encephalitis lethargica. It's a weird disease. So we're familiar, like because of awakenings, we're... Okay, I've never seen awakenings, so right. I don't know what so this disease does. I'm what sorry. awakenings, it, it's based on a book, I think by Oliver Sacks. So long-term cases of encephalitis lethargica put you into a coma-like state where you huh. are conscious, but you cannot respond. Oh. And you would just stay that way literally for the rest of your life. There may still be some people in nursing homes being cared for but in i think in the 70s it's like cyclocholine it's the drug that is given that like absolutely was, paralyzes you but you are absolutely aware of what's going oh, on yeah it kind of so the reason that awakenings was made and, and a, it was based on a book they started treating people like these people in comas in nursing homes with l-dopa i think okay anyway with a parkinson's drug and they snapped right out of their comas. Really? But they had all been in comas for like 50 years at that point. Like all of them were, they, they just sort of fell into madness pretty quickly and discontinued treatment. It's very strange. But that's, 
most people who get encephalitis lethargica don't end up in a coma. Like that's just a, it's just a weird thing. It's thought that it might have been tied to like ways that the immune system changed in contact with the 1918 pandemic. Okay. So how, so go back and tell me, so is there indication in the Salem period? So that, that's a question. So the, all right. So the, the coma like state is the famous thing with encephalitis lethargica, but the other symptoms in most cases can include weird eye movements, postural instability, muscle pains, neck rigidity, behavioral changes, tremors, vocal tick. There's all self-harm. Like there's a, an episode of this podcast will kill you about it that is fairly disturbing. Like it really it really screws up people's neurology and huh. they would commit self-harm without even apparently feeling pain. It's kind of upsetting. Anyway, so I would say that if encephalitis lethargica was implicated here, the likeliest kind of outcome would be that the bewitched girls in later life would show Parkinson's symptoms. Okay. Um, like it's thought that Hitler may have had encephalitis lethargica during the outbreak huh. and showed Parkinsonian symptoms later in life before obviously, you know, that all ended badly. Yeah. Um, I don't know if records exist of like these women's future health condition I or if they lived that long at all. I mean, it was a weird time. Fascinating. Okay. So my favorite explanation has always been, until very recently, that stored rye had been contaminated with the ergot fungus. Sure, drugs. Yes. A mold yeah. called Claviceps purpurea. Rock and roll! Which creates a chemical compound similar to LSD. And so basically they were dosing with their bread is the theory i mean and you don't know you're just having your bread yeah no idea so ergot poisoning and ergot is like it's a companion it's a blight fungus for rye like it's not this isn't some like weird out of nowhere idea like this is a thing that actually happens i'd hate to meet the misery fungus (laughs) ergot poisoning takes two forms i think it's gangrenous poisoning where limbs eventually fall off then there's the form we're talking about, convulsive ergotism. Oh. So in 1976, a grad student named Linda R. Caporeal published a paper on this in Science. And the case isn't exactly a slam dunk. It's funny to think about the population of Salem, Massachusetts, accidentally tripping balls back in 1692, except for all the trials and the dead people. Yeah. So Interesting. But honestly... Dear friends, as I binge my way through Handmaid's Tale on Amazon Prime, the theory that seems to fit best to me right now was proposed by a historian named John Demos back in 1970. Demos points to the structure of Puritan society, where young girls were under the thumbs of the older women in the community, and where the strictures of that society prevented any real clearing of the air when disputes inevitably arose. Between neighbors, between daughters and mothers but like you just you couldn't talk back sure that was a sign of bewitchment right <laughs> like, so this just meant that resentments piled up for years sometimes so demos pointed out that those afflicted by witchcraft tended to be adolescent girls while the accused were typically either married or widowed women between 40 and 60 interesting mm-hmm. he says that the symptoms of bewitchment writhing convulsing screaming choking were a symptom of the intense repression and framework of constant moral fear that everyone lived under. And so I'm going to quote from the Wikipedia article to kind of, I was having trouble phrasing this in a way that 
you know. Demos asserts that the violent fits displayed, often aimed at figures of authority, were attributed to bewitchment because it allowed the afflicted youth to project their repressed aggression and not be directly held responsible for their behaviors because they were coerced by the devil. Therefore, aggression experienced because of witchcraft became an outlet and the violent fits and the physical attacks endured inside and outside the courtroom were examples of how each girl was undergoing the psychological process of projection. Interesting. I can see that. I can just... I mean, how many times have you just been so, like, frustrated with a colleague that you're just about to boil over? Well, and to have a easy it, – it wasn't me. To it, have an yeah. easy route to – oh, that wasn't – it wasn't me. It was the astral projection of Yeah, the well, and to, to feel such a just tangible connection to the supernatural, which I believe people in this time did. Like, literally – people got in trouble because they had dolls in their homes. Yes. Yeah. Like this was, this was a like proof that you were a witch if you made little dolls. I just liked craft. <laughs> okay. All right, so oh god. So put differently, this has taken a lot of turns, Stacy. I didn't know this story was a story. Yeah. So again, if you aren't watching or haven't watched The Handmaid's Tale, ignore. I guess, but I mean. To put this differently, if allowed to play out on a long enough timeline, Gilead, the fictional theocracy in the story, will definitely have witchcraft panics, witch trials, and witch killings. Definitely. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, that is the Church of the Flaming Dumpster Fires. Trashy Witches edition. Trashy Witches. That was awesome. And Cotton Mather, revisionist historian... Um, unreliable narrator of his own contributions to the witch panic and early proponent of inoculation. Like, (laughs) mixed bag there, friends. He wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and be president of Harvard, but I think his reputation was pretty sullied by the the witch thing. (laughs) But he did apparently convince, uh, what, Eliahu Yale to make a big contribution to a new college they were starting, which became Yale University. Trashy. Mixed bag. Oh, my God. That was awesome. And that is October's Church of the Flaming Dumpster Fire, friends. I love it. Hallelujah. Wow, that's done. That was horrible. God. I mean, it was great, but it was horrible. Tip your witches. <laughs> <sighs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Y'all keep it spooky. Keep it spooky. Keep it spooktacular. Wash your hands and keep it spooky. You beautiful souls. Sorry, we're just being silly now. I need more coffee. (laughs) All right. Love you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for your support and being awesome. Now we're out. Thanks, everyone. Cheers, friends. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio.
You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.